If you have your Bibles, if you could take them out and turn to Acts chapter 26. Uh, and also, if you don't have a message outline, it's right back there at the center doors. Uh, it's the bulletin. Uh, we're going to continue on our series, Unstoppable. You know, someone once said to preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. You ever hear that? And there's some truth to that, that we have to share the good deeds as, as well as the good news. But the quote seems to give attention that the good deeds are more important than the good news. And it becomes kind of a mantra for those who say, I, I'm just called to be a silent testimony for Jesus. You ever hear people say, I'm just called to be a silent witness for Jesus. Please understand, we have to share the gospel. We have to share it. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Roman believers, says in Romans 10, 14, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one who they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So we're to be preachers that are sharing to, with them the message of Jesus Christ. We have to get, have the good deeds, don't get me wrong, but we have to share the good news. Because it's hearing the good news where they're going to come and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If we're just doing good deeds all the time, there's a lot of people doing good deeds. But we come and do good deeds in the name of Jesus. And given this opportunity, should share about the good news of Jesus, right? Because we want to see them in eternity, right? And the only way they get the eternity is through the good news of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul has shared, shared his testimony three times in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, chapters 22, and now here in chapter 26. But this time it's a little different. The question that we have today in our culture, as we look at our culture as followers of Jesus Christ, how are we going to impact our culture that is becoming increasingly cynical? Does anybody argue with that? That our culture is becoming increasingly cynical toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some say they, they don't want to hear it anymore. Some say they don't want to see it any, anymore for all kinds of reasons. But how did Paul do it? How did he share the gospel? How did he do it? How did he accomplish it? We're going to learn two things this morning from Acts chapter 26. We're going to be reading a lot uh, of the Bible this morning. And if you're here for the first time or new with this, you need to understand that the Bible's a big deal here at our church at Crossroads. Amen? Hopefully, here, amen. Uh, we don't worship the book, but we worship the one who gave us this book, right? Who gave us the book? God, Jesus, God gave us the book. We believe this is God's word, inspired by him, given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, as he worked with men over the course of about 1,500 years to write these words down without error. And these words give us direction. They give us sometimes a rebuke us, confront us, and sometimes they kind of give comfort. And that's what we look today at this book to find those kind of things, right, in our own lives. And so Paul shares his testimony. But let me give you a little background of what's happening here as we've been talking about this. We're almost through the whole book of Acts. I don't know if you realize that. But the story takes place as Paul has been brought down with under heavy guard down here to Caesarea on the, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And Festus was the governor, preceded by Felix. It almost sounds like television char characters, right? Some of you might remember there was a show out there with a man named Festus. They had a limp. You remember that show? What was the name of it? You're showing your age. You're showing your age right now to say you know Gunsmoke. That's quite a few years ago. Young people looking around, what? What are they talking about, right? But Gunsmoke, remember that. But Festus was the governor here, and he, he, he got, he's got the Apostle Paul there, and the Apostle Paul has been there now for two years, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. He wants to go to Rome. He wants to go to Rome to do what? to share his testimony about how Jesus has changed his life, and he wants to do that. So Paul is waiting, he's waiting. And Festus is in a jam because he's got to write a letter outlining to the Roman Caesar of what Paul has done. He's got to share with him, to warn him being arrested and being sent there to Rome 
and deserving of the death penalty. But he's looked at Paul, and he can't find anything wrong with him. And so now he knows that the Jews are accusing him, and they're watching him, and all this kind of stuff, accusing Paul, and they're watching. But he's got, a, he's got something that's coming that's going to help him out. King Agrippa II is going to come to visit, and, and so Festus is thinking, this is going to help me. We know that King Agrippa II has parted the Herod family, don't we? Part of Herod's family. His grandfather was Herod the Great. You might remember him during the birth of Jesus, that he had, Herod the Great, had the children two years and younger put to death. Remember that? It, that is, that was his, King Agrippa's dad was Herod Agrippa I, who had James beheaded and also had Peter put into prison in Acts chapter 12. It was King, King Agrippa II's uncle, who was Herod Antipas, that had John the Baptist beheaded. So this is not a real good family, right? You look at this, it's not a real good family. They killed people. They were the ruling class here. And it went from Herod the Great, now the last one, Herod, the Great, Herod Agrippa II. And he's called the king, but don't let that fool you. Festus is the governor. He's the one in charge. He's superior to, to King Agrippa II, who's just a vassal king and a ruler over the northern part of Palestine. But what does this have to do with our story? How does this fit in our story? Let, let me share you how it fits in. Herod Agrippa II is coming there, and he's traveling down here with Bernice. And he's coming to Caesarea, the capital now, the governing area now right here. And Festus is like, this is fantastic. Agrippa knows the Jews. He knows their practices. And he says, what I'm going to do, I'm going to have him interview the Apostle Paul. Then he can write the letter to the Roman Caesar, and I'm off the hook. And that's what he's thinking right now. Before we move on, I want to read you a couple of verses in Acts chapter 25. If you look at verse 13, that will help us to understand a little bit more of the background of what, it ha what is happening here. Acts chapter 25, verse 13. You find it? It says, A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay the respects to Festus. Skip on down to verse 23. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. I want you to notice the words, and Bernice, in each of those verses. And maybe say, that's kind of cool, that the king is traveling with his wife. But no, that's not the case. See, according to Josephus, who is a Jewish uh, historian coming out of the first century, he says that Bernice is his sister. So he's living, uh, Agrippa II is living in a relationship with his sister. He's living in incest. And she has a horrible reputation, having multiple affairs. And each time after one of those affairs, she comes back to King Agrippa II. And when you find those two words in Bernice in that passage, it's telling you a lot about the king. And it's telling you a lot about the times that are taking place. And I share that with you for a couple of reasons so you can understand. One of them, we live in a day-to-day -day where we look around and say, wow, this has got to be the worst time morally in the history of, of humanity, right? We look at that, we say that. That has ever existed, that's what we say. But in reality, you know, it's not. We've come a long, long way in a very short time. Don't get misunderstand me. But Paul was living in a very, very difficult time, a very cynical time. They had a problem in the Roman Empire with, with the thing called slavery, where a chunk of the people uh, were Roman slaves, and they could not be Roman citizens because of their slavery. They had a problem in Rome because in the Roman Empire with prostitution. It was a big deal in, in Rome. It was legalized in Rome, and, and it had worked its way into the religious systems of the time. In the cults of the temple, they had temple prostitutes. So the Roman Empire, as you can see by this story, had all kinds of problems with immorality. It was rampant. That was public. That people knew about it, according to Josephus. So their time 
Maybe it's a lot like our time. Might be even a little worse. So we can learn how Paul spoke to that culture. Maybe we can learn today how we can speak to our culture, right? That's what we want to do. How do we speak to our culture? In Acts chapter 26, Paul shares his testimony. As I read it, as he shares his testimony, I, I want you to read it because he shares it the same way that I've encouraged you to share your testimony in three parts. And I want you to see if you can't notice those three parts. I did a message a few weeks ago about that. You remember that? Where we shared your testimony in three parts. Remember me sharing that? Somebody say yes. Yes, okay, you remember that. Don't hurt my feelings. Say, say yes. Okay, the first part is life before Christ, right? We give a sentence or two or how our life was without Jesus before we came to Jesus. We maybe share that, and Paul's going to do that. And then we have the most important part, how I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. That's the most important part. And then your life after Christ. How your life has changed since Jesus, what the Lord means to you, what he's called you to do as a result of his grace. And see, as we read this, if you could pick that up in Paul's testimony. So let's begin reading in Acts chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. Stop right there. Some of you might be thinking, wow, Paul, here's your chance. You've got King Agrippa II, Bernice right there. Let them have it, Paul. Let it rip. Give it to them because what they're doing is wrong and everybody knows about it. Let them have it. But you don't see Paul doing that at all, do you? You don't see him doing that at all. Matter of fact, notice the respect that Paul shares with King Agrippa. Let me read verse 2 again. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Verse 4, the Jews will all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. This is his life before Christ. This is where Paul started. From the beginning of my life, in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it has become of my hope and what God has promised our fathers that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it's because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Now listen to this question in verse 8. It's a very important question. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Let me read that again. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Let me give you a little background to what Paul was was saying here, what he was really saying in verse 8. We who know our fathers... We who know the Hebrew background and the Hebrew people. We who know how God brought the Israelites out of Egypt with the ten plagues and delivered them. We who know how God brought them across the Red Sea on dry ground, the two million people. We who know how he brought them across the Jordan River during the flood stage, those two million people. We who know how he supplied quail from us. We who know how he turned the bitter water to sweet water. We who know all this. We who know all that background and the incredible things that God has done. All of us that know that, he says, why do you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? If you know all that history about God, and we do, why do you consider it incredible that God can raise the dead is what he's asking. That's what he's saying. Seems right, right? Verse 9. I too was convinced that he ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the saints in prison, 
And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to, the, to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Then he transitions how he came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. Verse 12. On one of those, these occasions, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats, or it's hard for you to fight against this conviction. That's what it means. Hard for you to fight against this conviction. Verse 15, then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. And now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now Paul gives us life after Christ, starting in verse 19. So then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, in all, in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove the repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, proclaim light to his own people and the Gentiles. Now it's going to get a little tense here. Watch what happens in verse 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. And I'm wondering how many of you have heard similar words from from people that maybe you've shared your testimony, shared your story of what God has done in your life to your family, to your close friends, to co-workers. It may not have said those words, but they said similar words. That you're out of your mind. You've gone crazy. What's going on with you? You ever hear that? You're out of your mind. And, and they're sharing that. And they said, you know how much you're going to give up to follow Jesus? Do you know what you're giving up? Do you know what you're going to lose? And you say, what do you say? You could take the whole world and just give me who? Jesus. Is that what we say, right? Because we know what Jesus gives us, right? The whole world doesn't add up to what Jesus gives us. We just take the whole world. Just give me Jesus because that's what I need for eternity. And so let's go on. Verse 25. He says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. Paul replied, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. Paul is pretty polite to a guy that just says, you're out of your mind. You're insane, right? And he's pretty polite through this whole thing, right? He's pretty polite what he's saying here. He's respecting them. Verse 26, the king, which is Agrippa, is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, but it was not done in a corner, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. What a critical question to ask where Paul says, King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? Is what he asked him. When you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with somebody, that person now becomes accountable. They come responsible to that message. And that's what Paul was bringing out to King Agrippa. Now you're responsible and accountable to this message. And what was Agrippa going to answer? How is he going to answer? Is he going to answer, yes, I agree with the prophets. I believe in the prophets. If he does that, Paul's going to say, then you have to believe what the prophets said about Jesus, right? 
If he says, I don't agree with the prophets, then you're going to have a problem with the Jews that are there and the Jews that he's leading, that he leads in northern Palestine. Paul kind of lets them off the hook here is what we see, but not, but not God. Paul says, I know that you believe is what he tells him. I know that you believe. Here are two things, if you have your outline, two things as a church, as Christ followers, all of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, in a culture that is very cynical, we live in a very cynical culture, uh, two things. First one, be devoted to the message. The message is so important, that we're devoted to the message. The message is Jesus. That's what Paul is focusing on, is who? Jesus, Jesus, and what the prophet said about Jesus. And also the resurrection. He's talking about the resurrection. It's so important, the resurrection. The resurrection was a thing that was causing so many problems, so much trouble, because they couldn't understand. And yet the resurrection was proven historically by the eyewitness accounts. So they're denying the resurrection. And Paul says, that doesn't make sense that you're denying the resurrection. Why is it so incredible for you to believe that God raises the dead is what he's asking. Why is it so hard for you to believe that? And Paul challenged him to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's what he's doing here. He's challenged him. Believe in the resurrection because that's the way to have eternal life is through Jesus. To believe that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and raised from the grave, right? We have a lot of issues in our world today that we look around us as, as believers in Jesus Christ that concern us. Amen? We have a lot of issues. We look around and see all these issues, whether it's immigration, whether it's gun control, whether it's Ukraine and Russia, inflation, gas prices, the poor, educational problems, abortion, as we've seen that kind of draft come out from, the, leaked out from the uh, uh, Supreme Court and the big rise up about abortion and everything. The list is long. and You probably have many other things you could put on your list and stuff like that. The answer is not any in all those issues. It's difficult. What are we going to do in any of those issues, right? But the real question isn't those. Those aren't the real problem. The real question of our culture and the real dilemma of our culture is that we have people in our culture who are alienated from God, right? That's the real problem, that they're separated from God. And the answer is not political. The answer is spiritual. The answer is that Jesus is the Son of God. He's God, and he died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and raised on the third day. That message is the central message. That's what we have to understand. That's the central message. That's what we need to share. We can get involved in all kinds of these issues, and we can speak to them, but, we must, but the most important thing we have to say, which the only thing that we can say who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, is to share the gospel message. That's what people need to hear. They need to hear about Jesus. Paul says in verse 23 that the Christ would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, will proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Whenever I do a funeral, I try to remind the family members who are sitting there mourning and stuff that that body in the casket is not their loved one. It's just the body that they lived in. And in just a few minutes, they're going to be placing that body in the ground. But because Jesus came forth from that grave, that body too will come forth from that grave. Because of the resurrection, right? Amen? Because of the resurrection, that body's going to come out of that grave. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have hope. And the message we have is a message of hope that our faith is real and death has been conquered. Death has been conquered by Jesus coming out of that grave. And when we leave this life, the Bible says we immediately go to the next, right? Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's death. Death is separation of soul from the body. That's what death is. That's all it is. Death is separation from soul from the body. Our soul goes on into the presence of the Lord. Only thing that's being put in that grave is the body. That's it. This shell. That's it. But that's not who the person is. It's their soul. 
And it goes on to be with Jesus in the presence of Jesus in heaven if they know Christ as their Savior. I believe the moment that we die and we go to heaven, we're not disembodied spirit floating around, just in disembodied. I believe God kind of gives us an intermediate body, a temporary body, a recognizable from the body here on earth. And the reason I say that, the Bible says that we are clothed in white robes. In order to wear a robe, you got to have some kind of body, right? A, body, a robe just can't fit over a spirit. you got to have some kind of body. We're clothed, the Bible says, in, in, the, in, in Christ's righteousness is what it says. So that body that we have is just the intermediate body. But the Bible says there's one day that is coming according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Because Jesus came forth from the grave, that body that was put in that grave is going to come out of that grave too. And it's going to be connected back with our soul again. And it's going to be a perfected body is what it says. So that body is important. One day God says we're coming back for that body and it's going to be raised. And some might think, what about those who have been cremated? You ever hear people say that? What about those people that have been cremated and their ashes been scattered out through the sea and, and blown in the wind as far as the east is from the west and is blown? And what I say to those people, and I ask you the same question, what I say to them, why is it so incredible to believe that God raises the dead? Why is it so incredible for us to believe that God raises the dead? A God who created everything, that put it all together, can he pull it all together? Can he pull it all together? Isn't God able to do that? Do you believe that he can do that? There will be a next resurrection because there was a first. There will be a second resurrection too. There will be the resurrection of those saints who have died and their bodies will be resurrected is what the Bible said. But there's going to be other resurrections. And one of the most important ones that we see is in Revelation chapter 20 where it talks about the resurrection of those bodies who did not believe in Jesus, did not believe in God. And the, the Bible says that death and Hades and the grave and sea gave up those bodies from them. And they will stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment. And at that judgment, they will be cast for eternity apart from God, separated from God in a place called the lake of fire is what it says. That's their, theirs because they did not believe in Jesus. And you and I, our message is Jesus, right? Say yes. Our message is Jesus. That's where you say yes. Amen. Our message is Jesus. And only then that can save those people from the great white throne judgment, save those people from the lake of fire, is that message of Jesus. That's it. Nothing else. It's just Jesus. And that message can never, ever, ever change. The apostle Paul said that we have to stay with that message. Such an important message. That message is more important than the messenger. And that message cannot be altered. Can, don't add from it. Don't subtract from it. Don't do anything. Because if you do, even a little bit, then you have a different message. You have a message of a different kind that can't save anybody. So we stick with that message. And what's the message? Here's the message, very simply. The message is Jesus, who he is. Who is he? He's the son of God. He's God. And what he did, that he died on the cross for our sins, he was buried and raised on the third day. That's the message. That's the gospel message right there. We can't add to it. We can't subtract from it. But that's the message that people have to believe in. Who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. Amen? Say you agree with that. Say yes. That's the message he's talking about. That's the message that Paul was sharing. When Paul is sharing his testimony, when Paul is sharing to defend his faith, he shares his testimony. Inside of his testimony has that of who Jesus is and what he did for him on the cross. That's what he's talking about. So the second thing that we need to be devoted to, we have the message is the mission. The mission. That's what we see here, the mission. Paul says, Jesus saved me. Then he called me, and then he said, I want you to go to your people, the Jews, and then I want you to go to the Gentiles and share with them this message so their lives can be changed, so they can be delivered from Satan to God, 
and from darkness, delivered from darkness to light, right? In the big, big picture of God's story, I want to give you the big picture of God's story real quick. He began by creating man. He created Adam and Eve in perfection and innocence they were created. And they sinned. And the whole world changed when they sinned. Because they sinned, we sin. We're all sinners, right? We're all sinners. And then you have the flood, when God brought judgment because of their sin. And after the flood, you have Genesis 7, 8, and 9. And then you have, again, people who, who are trying to do things. But many times when people are trying to do things, they do things that are opposed to God. You have the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 where people are trying to work their way to God. So what does God do because they were trying to do that? He kind of divides them. And so what we have there are nations and ethnic groups and languages are developing during that time. And every single person has the opportunity to respond to the grace of God. Every person has an opportunity to do that. And the Bible even says to look at creation of God and say, wow, there's got to be somebody greater, right? There's got to be something greater. It's like the cause and effect. There's got to be a God, right? And yet when we look at creation, in all of its glory, it doesn't teach us about Jesus. That you and I cannot see Jesus in the creation. Do you realize it? We can't realize through creation there's a Savior. That we're lost and we're sinners and we need saved. You can't realize that creation. Only thing that creation can teach us is that God is powerful, God is majestic, and God has a design. That's what it teaches us. To make us seek, there's got to be a God because look at this, to draw us closer so we get the special revelation. And the only way we get the special revelation is through the New Testament. We can see glimpses of it in the Old Testament where we get to Galatians chapter 4, 4, where it says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born of the law. Amen? And it helps us to know that we needed a Savior, that God sent his son Jesus to the world. And we know that by the Bible. We can't know that by looking around at creation and say, boy, we got, I need a Savior, that Jesus came and died on the cross for my sins. I might realize I need help, but I don't know about Jesus until the Scriptures. God's special revelation that he gives us in the New Testament helps us understand who Jesus is. And then we get to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, and he gives us a further commentary on Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, where he says this, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and in many times in various ways. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son, by Jesus. That's how God speaks to us, by his son, Jesus. And everyone's responsible. And now everyone's accountable to Jesus. Everyone, everyone, because of Jesus. If you heard about Jesus, you're responsible. What have you done with that message? And then we ask the question of ourselves. Why is it that we spend so much energy and time talking about sharing about Jesus, sharing the gospel, the good news, and being on mission. You, you ask yourself, Pastor, it seems like that's all you talk about. Why do you spend so much time to try to get people all fired up about that? Because God said so. God told us to go and make disciples of all nations. That is our mission. That's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Above all things else that we do in the world, that's our mission, to go and make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. That's what he says. And some people say they question about taking Christianity to the world because if you take Christianity to the world, to those tri far-out tribes, you're going to change the cultures out there. And we don't want to change those cultures, but we respond with great respect. But they have to tell people about Jesus, don't we? Because there's something more important than carrying on a culture. And it's this thing called eternity. Eternity is more important. Reconciling every man and woman to the God who created them through Jesus. That's our task to reconcile every man and woman to the God who created them through Jesus. That's what God has called you and I to do. 
every day, all day, for the rest of our lives. That's what we're called to do till he takes us home, right? And so we have all kinds of challenges in our world, all kinds of them that we said that I mentioned, and probably even more you could think of. But our mission, our mission is to share Jesus. That's our mission. Our mission is to share that message of Jesus, who he is and what he did for us. And I've been challenging you to put on your watch, right? To put on your mezuzah every day. And, you know, it might have been kind of funny. Or to take out your phone and remind you when you look at that, what time it is, to remind you that you're on mission time, right? Remember that? Say, yes, I remember that. Remember, we're on mission time, right? We're to be on mission time. Every time we look at our watch, it's mission time. I look at my phone, what time it is, it's mission time. And we're on mission 24-7, except when we go to bed and put down the phone or put down the watch. But as soon as we put it back on, we're on mission time. We're on mission time. And that's what God has called us, that you and I are to be on mission for him. Let's go back to Acts chapter 26, verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Some of you grew up with the King James Version. It says this, almost thou persuaded me to be a Christian. And it's almost thinking that the point is that you came this close, this close, but even being that close, you're still lost, right? You're still lost. But that's not what he's saying. That's not really restrained. He's not saying, nice try. You almost got me, Paul. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying, by this little talk, you want to make me a Christian? That's what he's saying to him. By this little talk, Paul, you want to make me a Christian? Is what he's saying. And how does Paul respond? Paul replied in verse 29, short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Now, that verse is very confusing for a lot of people. They get it all confused. What I believe that Paul is saying in that verse, he's saying that I'd like you to be like me as a follower of Jesus Christ. I want you to come to know Jesus like I know him and put your faith and trust in him. And I want you to be a follower just minus the chains that I am, I'm wearing today. Because Paul's in prison, right? He said, I don't want you to have these chains. So I'd like you to be a follower like me minus the chains. That's understandable. That's what he's saying, I believe. Notice the next verse. It says, the king rose... And with him, the governor and Bernice and those sitting with him. I look at verse 30 and would love for the story to end differently. I would like to rewrite the story, and it would be something like this. That the king rose and left Bernice and followed Jesus. Wouldn't that be nice to see that? The king rose and left Bernice to follow Jesus. But the very fact that the king rose with Bernice there was no life change means there was no faith that we see there. That the king left the way he came in with Bernice unchanged. And sometimes we can share our testimony, and the apostle Paul shared his testimony, and he still couldn't reach the king, right? And sometimes that happens, but Paul was faithful. He was successful because he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what he was called to do. Now, how do we affect our culture? This is not in your notes. I've been looking for a place to kind of put this someplace in this series. With all the things that's happened in our culture, I thought this would be a good place to put it in. So you might want to turn it over and kind of write these down real quick. Let me give you four ways that people try to reach our culture today. Four ways. The first way people try to do is they try to hide their heads in the sand. Just let's hide our, hide our heads in the sand. That's the approach a lot of people take in the church, right? They hide their heads, they bury their heads in the sand and say, man, things are so bad. They've gotten so rotten, so why should I even bother sharing on a sinking ship? Why even bother doing this? Let's just pray, Lord Jesus, just come back so quickly, right? And that's all they're thinking about. I wouldn't advise to do that. That's not going to work. We're called to be salt and light in our world, aren't we? We're called to be salt and light. The second approach that people take, 
that we look back and talk about the good old days. They love to talk about the good old days. We begin with this sentence with, I remember when. You hear people say, I remember when. Now, I want to be very sensitive and respectful and compassionate, but let me just share with you, please listen, the good old days are gone, and they're not coming back no matter how much you wanted to come back. And you can talk about them, you can talk about them and bring them up, but they're gone. In the good old days, they're not going to reach people. That's not going to reach people. It's not going to change a culture to bring up the good old days. It's the way we used to do it. It's not going to reach anyone today. It's not going to change a culture. And you can talk about it all you want, but it's not going to do anything for the people today. It didn't influence anyone for Jesus. Another approach or option is three, to fight every expression of anti-Christian thought behavior in our culture. And many people do that. We can pick at the abortion clinics. We can write letters to elected officials. We, we can boycott companies that take a different approach than we have. We can write letters to editors. And we can do all those things. And we've been doing those things for the last 40 to 50 years, haven't we? We've been doing those things. And, and recently, it has not worked. It has not worked, really. And we've lost the battle. And the reverberating sound that we get from our culture today is you've tried that and you've lost. And you've tried that and you're lost. And it's almost like we're, what Agrippa is saying to us and what the culture is saying to us, why are you asking us to act like Christians when we're not? Why are you asking us to act like Christians when we're not? And we're expecting everyone to follow and listen, obey everything just like we do from the Word of God. But the problem is they're not Christians. As we put the cart in front of the horse and say, why don't you obey this? Because they're not Christians. It's the same as before you became a Christ follower. You didn't obey it either. They're not Christians. And yet you say, I've lived in the past, and I lived in a, a nicer time, and a better time, and a safer time, and I just want that to come back, and we want it to come back. And our argument, many times the way we argue that, is that was the way our country was founded. You hear that, people? So that's the way our country was founded. And it's a fine argument and everything, and there's nothing wrong. It's nothing wrong with that, but that's not going to work. It hasn't worked, and it's not going to work to say, but with, that's the way our country was founded. You hear people say that all the time. That's the way our country was founded. But it's not going to work, and it hasn't worked, and it will not work today. It doesn't. So you probably think, okay, Pastor, then what will work? That's the fourth way that I, that I share with you. The fourth way is the words that Jesus shared. It's simple, and I've shared it with you. Jesus simply said the fourth approach, the only approach, is make disciples. If you want to change people, you change them one, one person at a time, it's through Jesus. You want their t thinking to change? It's not by electing uh, different people in the House and Senate and all that. It's going to change everything. No, what's going to change? It's changing one person at a time with the gospel message and Jesus changing them from the inside out. Then their thought pattern will be different. It'll be according to this. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. It's make disciples and change people through by Jesus, right? Let Jesus change them. That's what we're called to do. But let me clarify this. I would suggest continue on the fighting, but not in expense of making disciples. And that's many times what we do. See, our problem as a church is, is not the fight. Many people have that fight, you know, politically and all this kind of stuff. They get in all those things. But our problem as churches, and we've been many times fighting without being obedient to the one central command that God has given us, and that was to make disciples. That's what he called us. If you want to get involved in anything, that should be the primary thing you get involved in, that we need to make disciples, that we need to be on mission for Jesus and share Jesus. We can expect our Christian behavior and Christian entity from our culture when it becomes Christianized, right? But right now it's not. So to look at our culture and expect it to be, they're not following like Christianship, they're not going to. They're not going to. It's not going to happen. 
It's not going to happen until we start changing people one person at a time with the gospel. That's what will change. That's what will change. But, but to, fight the, to, to fight the fight without making disciples is what we're really doing in this time. The best thing we can hope for is just buying time for our children or our grandchildren. So I'm just buying time by doing all these other things. And maybe that's good enough. Maybe they say, that's what's good enough. I'm just buying time for my children and my grandchildren because then I'll be gone. And who cares, right? And say, maybe that's what you think's enough. But the first century church had problems as large or even larger than we have today. In the midst of a cynical world and cynical culture, were they successful? What we have to ask. When we read the book of Acts, were they successful? And it's amazing when you study first, second, and third century Christianity, it says at one spot that they turned their world upside down when they had a culture something like ours. They turned the world upside down. So how did they do that? The only way they did it was making disciples, sharing Jesus. A changed life because of Christ is what they did. People were changed. They had their good deeds, but they always they shared the good news. So much so that it became an unstoppable force in the culture. People could not stop it because people were coming to know Jesus and their thoughts, in their minds, and their hearts were changed because of Jesus. And so they started having a, a one mind in Christ. The way that we all dream of. And that's the only way it's going to happen by making disciples. There are many stories that come out of the three centuries, uh, the first three centuries of church history where the plagues hit the city so hard. They hit the city so hard, and the plagues had hit the children. And many parents, moms and dads, ran out of the city. And the adults ran out of the city. And what did they do? They left the children behind in the cities. And the only people that ran in the cities were the Christians. And they went to those children. They helped those children. They, they gave those children hope, and they gave them life. And they loved those children. And they made a difference. And you say, who would do that? Only somebody whose life has been changed by Jesus. It was those Christians. And they made a difference in doing that. They did what everything contrary to the culture. They were loving people with their good deeds, but also with the good news is what they did. So our thing we have to do, we have to share the gospel. And that's our challenge today is say, boy, instead of getting involved in these things, you can get involved in all those, but not at the expense of sharing Jesus. Because that's what we're called to do. As a church and as individuals, that's what we're called to do is be on mission for Jesus. That's why I stress that so much. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, that's the most important thing you can do is put your faith and trust in Jesus. And maybe say, I have questions. Please get those questions answered about Jesus. To understand that God loves you. Hopefully you realize that God loves you so much. The God of the universe loves you. And he wants to have a relationship with you. And because he's holy, just, righteous, and perfect, we're not. We're sinners. And so there's a gap between us and God. There's a separation. And there's no way that you and I can approach a holy, just God. So God sent his son from heaven, Jesus, who's God, who's the son of God, came down to this earth, became a human being, he became a man, and went to the cross, and God placed all of my sins, your sins, the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future, and Jesus died on the cross and paid for your sins. They're completely paid by Jesus. All your sins, past, present, and future. That Jesus was your substitute. The Bible says that he died on the cross, was buried, and raised on the third day. Now you and I have the opportunity to come to God the Father, but we have to come to him his way. And there's only one way. It's through Jesus. There's no other way. It's through Jesus. If there was another way, just think about this. If there was another way, why would God have his son go through the cross? But there was only one way. It was through Jesus. And anybody that comes and places their faith and trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sins finds forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it's all through Jesus. All through Jesus. 
Do we have to recognize we're sinners in need of a Savior and who Jesus is? He's the Son of God. He's the God, and he died on the cross for our sins, and he was buried and raised from the dead. If you've never done that, please do that today. Accept Jesus today. Or maybe you're like King Agrippa. I have more questions. If you do, please see me after the church. Get those questions answered. Don't let them stand in your way. For all of us who know Jesus, our mission is to be on Jesus to make disciples. Amen? Hopefully you understand what I'm saying. That's what we're called to do. Every one of us, if you know Jesus, we're all accountable. We're all responsible to that mission. So let's pray and ask to be empowered by the Holy Spirit because we can't do it ourselves, right? Let's pray and ask for God to empower us to become disciple makers, that we might reach more people in our family, more people in our community, our neighbors, and more people in the government. What they need is the gospel, guys. They don't have to have different views. They need Jesus, and Jesus will give them the views, right? That's what they need. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we come and we praise you. We thank you so much, Lord, for, for the Bible, when it gives us the truth and stuff. And Lord, that, Lord, you give us the truth and we get principles from it. We apply it to our lives. Let us not miss, Lord, what you were doing through the Apostle Paul and how you were changing a culture through that early church. That they were laying the foundation of what you were doing there, Lord, how they were going to reach people. And we see it through the book of Acts that it was about making disciples at all their expense. Nothing came more, more, more important than that. Their priority was making disciples, no matter what kind of harm it might brought them, no matter what kind of uh, problems they might bring them. The number one thing they were called to do was make disciples. Lord, in our world, there's so many things that take our focus and our attention. And I pray, Lord, this morning that, Lord, we prioritize our lives. Help us to realize the number one thing you've called us to do is to be on mission for you, to go and make disciples of all nations. That wherever we go, whoever we're with, we may magnify Jesus and share them about Jesus Christ. As we see in the early church, Lord, how they turned the world upside down. May we do that in our social circle. May we do that in the people we have influence. May we return the world upside down by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we can't save anybody. But Lord, all that we can do is share the message. Jesus saves. God the Father, you save. But our, our mission is that we be faithful to share the gospel message and have them, give them an opportunity to hear it and let them either accept it or reject it. But help us, Lord. Empower us by the Holy Spirit. Give us the boldness. Give us the words to share. And as we see through the Apostle Paul, we see through others, what they shared, Lord, wasn't doctrine. What they shared was not. They shared their story of what God did in and through their life. And it was so powerful and effective. And many people came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. So, Lord, help us that we might be devoted to the message, which is Jesus, what he did, and to the, to the mission to share Jesus Christ. I pray for every one of us today, Lord, that that would be our heart's mission to do that, Lord. And Lord, that you, we would yield our hearts and minds to you and say, God, that you speak to our hearts and minds and give us the opportunities and abilities to do that, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.